Welcome to We Mentor Mondays with Nancy podcast. Get inspired. Break through to new dimensions with your entrepreneurial peers on the path to self-leadership mastery and life success. Redefine how you lead as you redesign your business. I call this dual innovation leadership. Take charge of who you next become. Feel more deeply to think, act, lead, and mentor more clearly and effectively. Discover something new from our meaningful conversation today. Hi, I'm Nancy. Welcome to episode 372, Taste of Joy with Emily A. Francis. I didn't know I needed Emily's book until I started reading The Taste of Joy, Mediterranean Wisdom for a Life Worth Savoring. I know many people who moved during the COVID-19 pandemic to a bigger house or moved to a smaller town or out of state. Emily Francis and her family flipped the script on their life story. She wrote a plot twist she didn't see coming. They left their life in Atlanta, Georgia to create a new life in Malta. Malta is part of the European Union and has been an independent country since 1964. Emily is sharing her journey and one of the healthiest lifestyles in the world to invite us to live simply, mindfully, and naturally to nourish our bodies and souls. To give you a little bit more background, Emily A. Francis. Emily is a highly sought-after speaker, radio host, columnist, best-selling author, and wellness expert with a vast array of education and experience. A Taste of Joy, Mediterranean Wisdom for a Life Worth Savoring was released earlier this year. This is her fifth book. Her knowledge of the body and the body-mind connection is extensive, and her commitment to total body, mind, and spirit wellness is her driving force. She has a few degrees and hosts the internet show All About Healing on Healthy Life Radio. In moving to Malta, Emily has become deeply involved with local food production on the island. She writes a regular column titled Emily in Malta in the local tourism magazine called Oh My Malta, where she interviews local farmers, fishermen, and chefs on single-ingredient farming. You can find more about Emily at emilyafrancisbooks.com. Emily's happiness self-help book focuses on Mediterranean diet, mindfulness, Mediterranean recipes, long and healthy living, the pursuit of happiness, mindfulness, and the purpose of living. I could not be be more thrilled to talk with you, Emily. Hi, welcome to We Mentor. Hi, Nancy. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to to join you. And and my goodness, you know, when when you do the introduction, I'm like, is that really all? Is that me? <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I know when you put together how much you do over a life. It's a mouthful. Yeah. And you're a mother of two girls too. Oh, my goodness. So how are you on this Monday morning? Well, it's not morning for me. Oh, that's right. So I've already taken my kids to school. I've already picked them up from school. They're in the back room. Uh, It's four o'clock in the afternoon in Malta. So so I've had a full day. I see. And I'm just starting my day. Okay, that's fantastic. Tell us a little bit of um, why you added the A in Emily A. Francis. Well, I mean, my, it's your middle my, name, but it is Anne. Uh, but I started because my original, my here they call it your surname, but my maiden name is Smith, 
And so there were so many Emily Smiths out there that I had to put that middle initial in just to single me out a little. And then I married uh, my husband, whose last name is Francis. And it turns out there's a lot of Emily Francis's out there, too. And there's even a lot of Emily A. Francis out there. But a lot of people that write books tend to add that middle initial just so that you can find them a little easier. But the truth is, it makes it a little harder because, as I was just telling you, I think Emily Francis at Gmail gets a lot of my messages. That's right. <laughs> well, I enjoyed our conversations so much uh, last week. One, I mean, one conversation. We didn't have many. Uh, you introduced <clears throat> me on Zoom to your friend, Michelle, who yes. taught you how to drive. So I was like, what are the roads like in Malta that she... They're insane. <laughs> They're insane. They're, uh, so, I mean, I've been driving since I was 15 in America on the right-hand side of the road where the roads are wide enough now in my mind to be at least one and a half cars. The roads in Malta are stone on each side. So you're going through these really narrow roads. Most of them are stone. And they were made for horse and carriage. So all of a sudden you have these cars going through that are too wide for the roads. And not only do you have that, but you have two lanes. So you have back and forth. People are going both directions. And uh, honestly, you hold your breath and hope to God you don't scrape the wall or the person next to you. And they're really aggressive. So it's like, I mean, I have this running joke, but I'll pick my kids up from school and the mom's, bye, see you, see you. And then you get in the car and you just honk, honk. And they've got these hand gestures and they're yelling at you. And you're like, what just happened? It, it is complete insanity. And not only that, there's very few stoplights here. They use roundabouts for everything. And the deal is, an American doesn't know, because you get to a four-way and you think the person on the left goes and the left, not here. If you make it into that circle, you have the right of way. Everybody else has to stop. So you got to figure out how to zoom in like Frogger and get in that circle so you can go. It is, it's really, it, it's humorous if you're not the one. My husband doesn't even drive here. He's been driving all his life and we share a car and I do all of the driving because when we moved here, I took driving lessons after Michelle took me on my initial, I took them every Monday for months. Wow. Yeah. That is something. Your husband's name is Scott. Yeah. And he does not drive. He's like, why would I drive? You're the one that's done all the lessons. So, I, but you know, what's cool because it's such a small Island, my morning and my afternoon. Now we wake up as a family. He helps me get the kids ready. We sit down for family breakfast. So you're not just having family dinner. You're having family breakfast. Then we all jump in the car together. We drop one child off at her school, one child off at the big school, daddy off at his office. And then the day is mine. And then we do it again later. I pick up both girls and then we go and pick up daddy later. It would be a pain if it wasn't like not that far. You know, it's like 10, 15 minutes. The entire island is 40 minutes north to south. The entire island. So anywhere you want to go is a good 20 minutes and people freak out. It's so far. You know, it's like I come from Atlanta. <laughs> 20 minutes. It's just nothing. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> So like you said, you um, used to live in Atlanta, Georgia in 2020. I was curious, what were some of the conversations that you had with Scott and your two girls, Hannah and Ava, before you decided to move to Malta? For me, I became really loud when COVID came and my husband no longer had to drive into the office. And I had already pulled the kids out of public school because of all the gun violence and things, especially living in the South. So I'd already found a homeschool program. And the homeschool program blew up in my face because when COVID came, they are anti-technology. So they left us high and dry. 
So all of a sudden, I'm homeschooling. I'm mad. My husband's not having to drive into the office anymore. And I'm like, what are we doing here? This makes no sense anymore. Let's go. Yeah. And so he kept saying, I can't leave, can't leave until I have to be where my boss is because my husband is the chief technical officer of a high tech company. He has to be with the CEO. They have to be hand in hand. And at the same time, unbeknownst to us, the CEO and his wife were on a cruise at that time while we're arguing over this idea. And they got sidetracked over to Malta because of COVID. And his wife is Italian. She got off the ship. She looked around and she goes, yeah, I could live here. And he called the prime minister, brokered a deal, and we were off to Malta, all of us. Oh, my God. That is yes. what a story. Oh, my God. So they moved the whole company. They moved like 30 people from around the world to Malta with this company. So the CEO, the CFO, the CTO all moved to Malta. And then people from Poland, people from, from all around came. But their data center was in Poland. So a lot of the Polish people came here because the weather's so much nicer. So they're like, heck, yeah, get me over there. And so we have this little family here of the people that work here and their UK office came over here also. So I think they brought in 30 people from across the world into the Malta space to make Malta all of our home. And we moved here never having visited, trusting in all the process, but it hit my two things that I wanted. Honestly, I didn't really care if I was happy or wasn't because I wasn't happy in South Jordan. So my thing was, I need to be in a country where it's GMO foods, genetically modified organisms are banned. That was my number one. Get me to a healthy country where I can feed my kids things that I don't have to worry all the time is going to cause autoimmune sensory disorders and cancers later on. And then the other one was the gun violence. I, I, you know, people have their own opinions, but when it comes to your kids and going to school, I didn't feel safe. And I remember walking into Walmart in the South and I'm holding my daughter's hand and the man in front of me is holding his daughter's hand, who's got to be four, and a gun's hanging out of his jeans not even in a holster. And that moment I was like, what am I doing here? What am I doing? I don't feel safe. I don't like these, this not strict anything. And here in Malta, they have extremely strict gun control. The police don't even carry guns. There's no active shooter drills in the schools here. And, And I hadn't even thought about that because I put it on Facebook one time. I don't even remember what I said, but a friend of mine from college, we went to school in Alabama, married an Australian guy, and she's raising her children in Australia. And this was years before COVID. And I said, don't you miss every time you come home and see your family? Does it make you want to move home? And she said, I miss it so much. But when I think about having to explain to my children what an active shooter drill is, I stay here in Australia. And it was so poignant to me. And it was like, your kids don't do that. She was like, no. She said, I can't even imagine sitting my two little boys down and explaining to them this idea of an active shooter. And, And in that moment, it was like, I want that. I want that for my life, for my kids. Yeah. So when we had the opportunity, we didn't even look back. We just, I mean, we took four animals. We took all of our pets, three dogs and a cat, two kids, my husband and me, to a place across the world, never visiting, and just showed up and had to go into mandatory quarantine because it was COVID. And we had to pick our house from a realtor who lived in Malta. You're doing everything virtually and hoping for the best and trusting the process. But to me, it was... My kids are going to be safe. My kids are going to be safe. I'm, I'll figure me out. But I had no idea that I could be as happy as I am living here. I just wanted my family safe and I wanted yeah. everybody closer. And I had no idea that I was going to come here 
and create an entirely new life for myself, not just for my kids. I have friends now, all the moms and their kids, that's a group. And I have the co-workers of my husband, that's a group. But I have my own group. And that's because I write for the tourism magazine and meet all these farmers and fishermen around the island because I want to learn the old ways of farming and fishing where they're not sprayed with chemicals like that. And so I've I've done this legwork for more than two years and created this group of people that they're so special to me. And they're kind of, they're my own. Like I said, I drop everybody at work. I drop everybody at school. And then I'm down in the farming towns across the island playing. I was I was out two weeks ago cutting capers from the capers bush. I have been waiting for the capers to come into season for two years. Oh. And finally, the farmer said, come up. I'll show you. I'll take you. We'll go make, you know, we'll go brine the capers and I'll teach you the secrets. And, you know, and it's crazy because you just pull these capers off the bush that if you walked by, you would never know is capers bush. Never. And so then we tiny. have the book. They're tiny and they're random, yeah. really, kind of. And then he put them in the bucket. We go back to his house and he puts them in a big bucket with an egg in the middle and uh, an egg still in the shell, just a raw egg from the fridge. And then he adds salt after salt after salt, swirling it until the egg rises to the top. And that's when you know that it's the perfect amount of salt to brine your capers. Oh. Pour it into the capers, you cover it up, you stick it under the stairs for like uh, four to six weeks, and then you've got capers. Wow. Amazing, You know, right? the process was so it's involved. Yeah. It's, but it's these people. These people know the tricks. They don't have, he's like, some people measure two cups. I don't measure. I do the egg. When the egg comes to the top, you know, you have the right amount of salt. You don't have to measure this. And it was so, this is what I've been doing week after week, month after month with different farmers around the island and discovering these secrets because I'm bold and going out and introducing myself and saying, can I come to your house with a camera crew and interview you? And you have a lot of, no, I don't want you know, so I've learned if I make a phone call, I'm never going to get it. They're going to say no. If I show up 8.5 out of 10, I'm getting it. Oh, so you show up with the camera crew. Show up. No, I show up first and ask permission. Okay. And then you bring in, you set the date and okay. Exactly. Wow. Hannah and Ava, they were, their ages nine and almost 11 now. Yep. Yep. So they were and six and six, six and oh, yeah, six and eight when we moved here. And what's their school life like? Oh, my gosh. We're so lucky. First of all, because of COVID, it's weird because you move across the world and the way that COVID was handled was mighty different. Everybody wore a mask here. There was no fight. It was not a political divide. We were never told it was not real. Everybody wanted to keep their parents and grandparents. This is a multi-generational country. People live with the grandparents. People live with the parents. They survived World War II. The grandparents that survived World War II are still alive to tell about it. So when, when COVID came and it was time to wear a mask, people didn't fight that. They wanted to keep grandma and grandpa safe. So that was already very different. So we didn't have to do online. We could go to school. Whereas in the United States, everybody went online. Here they did not. You actually had a choice could go online, but you could be at school. So my children went to school. The other thing is because of COVID, we were able to get into a school that at another time would be a five-year waiting list. But because of COVID, so many people went back to their home countries or made different choices. And so we were able to get in. Oh, wow. So I, honestly, it's weird because I don't want to say 
that I'm glad COVID happened because I'm not, but it was, the timing was, was really surreal and auspicious, I'll say, because not only were my children able to get into one of the top schools on the island, they start school earlier here. So both of my children had to skip a grade and one of mine had to skip two grades because I had held her back to be a young birthday because she's a summer birthday. They don't do the cutoff in summer here. They do it in January. So she had to skip two grades moving here. The other grace of God, honestly, for COVID was that the teachers were more flexible and patient with the children's learning than at any other time in world history because they weren't alone in being behind. Wow. So that's yeah, that amazing. does. Yeah. It's well, it's a whole different frame of mind when you're teaching. It's totally it's the- different. It's totally different. And not only that, but I have to say here in Malta is very much like Italy. So Malta and Sicily are 60 miles apart. So it takes, I don't know, an hour by boat to get across. It's very close. And so you have a lot of that old world type of living. And what I mean is when you watch the school, I became, I think I told you this, I was the school van chaperone the whole year that first year because of COVID, they didn't have enough supervisors on the van. And I jumped on with my kids and and watched all the kids on their van from the first day of school till the last day of school that first year. Because you're in COVID, you can't find their classroom can't go to the school and tour it. You can't go meet their teachers. You're just putting these American kids on a van and hoping for the best. Go find your classroom, honey. Go find out who your teacher is. I mean, my child came home on the first day and cried her eyes out thinking she was in the wrong class all day because in America, we call you Mrs. Smith. Here they call you Miss Caroline. So the whole day, my child was waiting for the surname that was never spoken. It was the first name. So, you know, you don't know that stuff because you didn't get to have an introduction and meet the teacher. So I jumped on the van with them because there was an opening and I could. So I I met all kinds of kids from the neighborhood, met their parents, rode on the van every day. But then none of the people at school knew I was a parent because I was with all the van coordinators. So we would stand across the street with all the little old ladies that do this in retirement. And I would watch the school and all the teachers and how they greet the children not knowing that somebody who's enrolled in the school is watching. And what I saw was the headmaster outside every day and the teachers, and they'd hold their arms open and they'd go, good morning, Poopa. And Poopa in Maltese means doll. And they kiss the top of their head and they hug them and they'll say, I love you. They say things that in American school, we are like, oh, don't touch them. You're inappropriate. You're this. Here it's like, you're hugged, you're loved, you're welcome. You're part of this family. Your poopa. I had to text my friend, the same one, Michelle, and I'm like, what's poopa? <laughs> she was like, it's doll. <laughs> I knew it was something nice because of the way they said it. Yeah, but I had right. to text her and she was like, it's doll. And I was like, oh, nice. You know, but they, and they'll go, hello, sweetie. You know, <laughs> it's very loving. So my kids have a completely different approach. It's harder. They have more homework every single day. Every single day they have schoolwork. They have a lot more discipline and they they also garden at lunch break. They teach the children how to grow their food and to learn about the Mediterranean diet. Their, their food pyramid looks nothing like an American food pyramid. Their approach to food looks nothing like what I grew up doing. Um, so it's a, totally a different world, but I have to say for us, it really works. Like my husband all the time, he's like, could you imagine being a kid in Malta? What a great place to grow up because the adults here, they'll help a kid any day of the week. And you have a lot of families that are still together and they really put this nucleus. 
So you have their family and then their parents, whoever they live with. These people don't move out. And so a lot of times if they own a house, they build a second story when they get married. And then now your new family lives upstairs and your mother and father are down. So I always have to do a double take when I hear adults going, and my father this morning was saying, and I'm like, your father this morning? How'd you see your father? You know, and then it's like, I saw him at the breakfast table, you know? So it it is such a different world. I knew moving here, I was going to have to change my vision and look at the world with different eyes and be vulnerable and humble because you're not, you're not the almighty American over here. You're, you're now a foreigner. So what's it like to be the new kid? And, And how do you, how do you assimilate? Yeah. And um, you have vans instead of buses for the we kids? Do. Yeah, they hold 14. So it's, but because the roads are so different, buses are really hard. Uh, they do have buses, city buses and things, but a lot of these roads, I don't think a bus could even get through to get to these homes because not only there's no bus stops for these kids. They're not going down the street to their bus stop. Each child is dropped off and picked up at their home every single one on the entire island. So they have many vans. Yeah, that's just incredible to me. (laughs) So Paul Parker, um, the producer, director of Paul Parker Productions in Malta, wrote a beautiful preface to your book, explaining why people need to read your book. His reasoning ends with this statement, because everyone needs a bit of joy in their life and an anchor to reel them back into reality, and enjoy what's around them every day. Paul is referring to you as his anchor, giving him a new perspective that people who live in the Mediterranean take for granted. What is it about the Mediterranean that makes life so different? Paul's the producer on a wellness show that I've been on 30 times since I moved here. And it was because of Paul that I got my first shot and then I kept climbing. So I get to see Paul behind the camera and he happens to be my landlord. So it works out very well. Um, He's very well known here on the island. So people freak out when I say that he's my landlord. They're like, because they like he works with Russell Crowe who comes here and the different celebrities that come and he does the movies. Imagine when you go take a vacation to the beach. When you go take a vacation to the lake, how do you feel? Relaxed. Now imagine living in a place that's completely surrounded by water, that's completely surrounded by the Mediterranean Sea, almost at the end of every road. Even if it's crowded, even if it's different, imagine that everywhere you look, you can get to the sea. Mm. How different. I mean, my kids this morning, when I picked them up from school, they said, Mom, can we go get a slushie? It's at the beach. The beach is... Uh, less than five minutes from my house. And I said, no, I can't because I have a phone call. I got to be on. So we're not going to do a slushie today. But on the sunny days, they're like, please, can we walk down to the beach? Because it's all right here. So imagine that you don't have to pack up and go take this big thing away from your life. This is your life. Imagine that like me saying we have family breakfast. How many people get to have that kind of time with their whole family? How many people get to have two out of three meals a day together as a family at the kitchen table? How many people want to? Honestly, my husband looks at me sometimes and he goes, I got to say, happy looks good on you because he's never seen me this happy. And people that we met here, it's amazing. I remember being in the back of a car. They're not Ubers here. They're called a Bolt. And we were in a Bolt. And this British man, he said, I drove a bus for 30 years in, in the UK. I moved to, I came here for a vacation and never went home. 
And he said, <laughs> I've been here now like 20 years. And he said, and I can guarantee I've added 10 years to my life being over here because I'm so much less stressed. Hmm. So to me, you're not only eating better quality food, you are really around the water and you're around people. People here are really into their own life, but they love to support you. So they don't have, there's not that big gossip thing or that keeping up with the Joneses. There's no Amazon here. There's no Target. There's no Walmart. There's no CVS or Walgreens. There's none of that. So everything you look at, you go, do I even need that? Do I really need to buy that? You go to these locally owned stores and locally owned restaurants. And so you're supporting people that you love and you're buying a lot less items. It's a different perspective all the way around. Because now mm. if you want to buy me something nice, buy me a really good bottle of olive oil. And when I say good, I mean, go to my farmer, go get an olive oil that has one species of olives and nothing added. I don't care what it costs because it'll be under 20 euros. Go get it. If we think about that in the US and pop on a gorgeous label, we could charge 50 bucks for that same bottle or that bottle with a bunch of junk added to it. You know, and call it like high quality. But here, the the things that you wouldn't think about at home are the front runners in your thought process here. To me, it's like we live on vacation. Yeah. You had mentioned so that you and Scott are in your 40s still working. Um, is, is Scott, too, very happy? Is He's his... very happy. So you now, both he, are seeing another side. He's more stressed than me. He's yeah. more stressed than me because he's the CTO of a company that they they got listed on NASDAQ. It's a huge deal. But then once you make it to that dream, you got to keep it, which has been hard, really hard. But he is much happier than he was. And he's certainly healthier, but he's not living that. I'm living the dream life. I don't have yeah. to go to work. Everything I do is because I want to. I'm not allowed to work here in Malta. I don't have a work visa. So everything I do is for free. I don't negotiate my worth in dollar figures. I still write books out of the United States. So I still get paid for books. I still host my radio show in the US. So my work essentially didn't change, but I added so much to my plate, but it doesn't feel like work. I don't say I have to go interview this person. I have to go cut capers now. But if you're, if it's a job, you feel like that. Yeah. You know, but to me, it's like, oh my gosh, it's finally Tuesday. I'm cutting capers today. (laughs) Like the way that I, and that's what Scott always, he goes, one day he was at work and I was doing my dream of taking the olives and pressing it into oil. I finally got to be near an olive press and this olive oil guy Jamie Oliver flew across the world to come and meet this guy because he's considered the godfather of olive oil here in Malta. And he has trees upon trees of different kinds, different varieties of olives. One is the sacred white olive that turns pink when it's ripe. They don't exist anywhere else in the world. He found Mm. them from nuns, local nuns that it was growing in their convent and they didn't know. They just used it as decoration. And then finally, one year they went to him and said, maybe we try to press it into oil. And he said, can I have some? Can I come to to your convent and harvest some and see if I can grow it? And last year or two years ago when I did the interview was the first year he was able to yield a harvest and sell the white olives in oil. And the other olives are incredible. So I came home that day and Scott looked at me and he goes, I'm so proud of you. And I'm trying so hard not to be jealous, but there you go, living my best life. You know, and it's true. So when I get the magazine back, what I do is I go and do these articles and I come with the cameraman and I I the articles printed in the magazine. And then when it comes time to deliver the magazine, I like to hand deliver to the farmers and I bring my family. 
And then they get to meet the farmers and see what I was up to and experience some of that for themselves, because I do think it's really important. Well, it's a it's a really integrated life. It is. really. You know, when we talk about like becoming an integrated person, we're not always talking about how we integrate everything in our lives. And what that's what you're talking about in the Mediterranean lifestyle is there is a way to feel good about every aspect of your life. I think people here support family more. Everything here is about family. You don't really hear that anymore in the United States. But here, everything is family. So when you become friends, close enough friends, you're their family. Now you're part of this group. So even like when I went and did the interview in Gozo, which is the sister island, and I went in and met the family for the Gozo Sea Salt, which is the most renowned salt pans on the island. It's been in their family since the 1800s. I went and I met Josephine, and then I met her parents who've been married for 53 years. And they sit out on their little rocking chairs by the salt shop, and they greet everyone. And then Josephine did the interview with me. And as soon as we drove away, I got a text that said, okay, now you are family. Anything you need ever, just say the word. And when I go to Gozo, I immediately go go see her. And she has cookies waiting for the kids. Her, her dad brings out special coffee that they've gotten from some, spe- you know, someplace special. And they, they really roll out. But when you show them love over here, it's not just my family of four. I have a huge family here. I have people that I trust and that I can count on. And that so when even when the farmers call me, they'll say, how's your husband? You know, they're not just saying, how are you? How's your girls? Oh, so sweet. One of my favorite farmers, the one I was cutting capers with, we've done prickly pears together, figs together and now capers. And because of our our videos, he's now going on Netflix for prickly pears. And then the BBC called him last week for, for an episode of Ready, Set bake or ready set cook or whatever based on our original interviews but when he calls he asks how scott how are the girls i know his wife i know his daughter one day my cousin was visiting and we were in that part of town and she really had to go to the bathroom and she's like i can't hold it i said it's okay tony lives down the street he's not home today but let me see if his wife is and his daughter answered i'm like please can we use your bathroom because we were across the island but in a normal world where I come from before, that would never happen. Plus, there'd be bathrooms somewhere along the way. But here, there's like two gas stations in all of Maliha. There's like one gas station in my town. Like, And they don't have bathrooms there. They have gas attendants that come out and pump for you. There's no, no yeah. buying candy at the gas station. And you're not going to the bathroom. You're not going in and buying snacks. That doesn't exist here. You're just yeah. pulling up to the pump and they then you hand them the cash. And they put it in. It's it's like my friend said, my friend's Brazilian. She's in the book, Juliana. And she said, you know why you love it here so much? And I said, why? And she goes, because you live in the 1980s. This is the 1980s. There's not even voicemails on the phones. I think that's more like the 50s. It's incredible. It's incredible. But yeah. family is everything here. So it's the approach to life here. It's, it's the, when, you know, I think that the Americans coined the Mediterranean diet as a diet, as a thing that you eat. But over here, the Mediterranean diet is your way of life. It's not things that you pull away. It's not a specific food protocol. It's how you approach life. It's your family. It's your friends. It's top quality olive oil. I mean, I go to different people's house and they go, oh, smell this. And it's olive oil. It's like gold. 
I have four olive trees now that I've planted. And this year is the first year they're going to yield a harvest. You know, when I lived in the States, I don't know that I would have been outside talking to my trees every day and, you know, thinking, I can't wait for you to grow. But there's a priest in the fishing village with an olive press and you just bring your olives to him and he presses it for you and gives it back in a big jar. And he doesn't charge you for it. You just go and drop off your olives and he puts your name in your little bin and then you get your olives back. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So you write about um, in the taste of joy that so many people around the world lost their sense of smell and taste during COVID. And so when the first thing, you know, that happens when the taste buds come back is you you want to eat. eat. Right. So what you're describing is, you know, getting this taste back. Yes. For life. I mean, I feel like I now have a zest Mm. for life that I didn't, feel. I tried. I tried really hard to feel it because we had moved from the north to the south side of Georgia the last year before we moved here. And I tried really hard to still maintain my sensibility and my balance. And as a spiritual being, you're happy anywhere. That's just not true. If your environment is not nourishing to you, it is just as hard to live a a well-balanced life. So if you don't have good mental health, you're going to be miserable no matter where you are. But if you don't have a good environment, you're going to be really uncomfortable wherever you are, even if you've worked on your mental health. Because I did years working on my mental health. And then you stuck, we stuck me in an environment that did not lend itself to health and wellness and kindness and inclusivity, inclusiveness. It was a super Southern town. And so I wasn't happy, but I tried really hard to make myself be or fake it. And then all of a sudden we move here and it's not, I'm not faking it. When, when, when I read those little memes on Facebook, if you could snap your fingers and be anywhere in the world, where would you be? And I look out my back door and go right there, Mm, right there. You're right exactly where you need to be. Exactly. Yeah. With uh, the good people in Malta. Really good people. I love that in your chapter about you. How they say, are you good people? That's what they want to know. The farmers. The farmers are a whole different breed. They're just, they are salt of the earth. So some people would probably meet them and think you're not very educated or I don't know, whatever. But to me, they're the most educated in what they know. What they know, they know it. They know it. They could knock your socks off with their information. And I'm there to learn that particular information. So we don't need to go head to head on another part of life. We're talking about this farming life. What I've found with all the farmers, they're very protective of their group and their unit and their space. So it's taken me two years to become one of them. And the reason is because they really approach you with, are you good people? And if the answer is not a resounding yes, and you can't answer it for yourself, you can't say, yes, I am. They have to find out. So if you're good people, you're going to be invited, but you're going to have to work for it. But if you're the slightest bit shady or manipulative, if I were just using them just for these articles and I wasn't coming back around and maintaining these relationships, I don't know that I would be as welcome. So the good people is authentic. Salt of the earth. Real, the real. Uh, is your heart Sure. You know, it's the the same uh, farmer, Tony, my capers and all that. He's absolutely hilarious. He's like barely taller than me and I'm four foot 11. So he's like Danny DeVito of Malta and he's really outrageous and he makes funny things up and he's, he tells people that I'm one of the president's nieces and that that's how I've been able to do all the things in Malta that I've been able to do, which is not true. I'm not affiliated with either political party. Uh, But he tells people that because he thinks it's hilarious. He just makes up funny stories and kind of goes by it. 
And, uh, you know, he's just, he's well, but everybody that everybody knows him. So whenever his name comes up, they go, Oh, that guy, he's crazy. Every person, that's what they say. He's crazy. And then I stop and go, he's totally nuts, but he's got a heart of gold. And they kind of stop for a second. And I say, he calls me almost every, he calls me at least three times a week to check on me. He is the reason that I got the forward to my book from the tourism minister, because the tourism minister's father is a farmer (laughs) and they grew up together. He will do anything for you and he'll do anything for his other farmers. He wants to connect people and, and elevate people. So a lot of these guys that go, he's so crazy. When I point out how really golden-hearted he is and how exceptional of a human, they always take a step back and then realize that I'm right. I'm explaining him in a way that they haven't seen him, but that's who he is. So to me, he's he's like my Yoda <laughs> of the island. Oh, he's for, crass. Yeah, right. He's got a foul mouth, but he knows more than anybody. He's the first farmer to hybrid lettuce over here many, many years ago. He knows he can pick up any food and tell you things about it that we would never, ever know. He showed me a weed, and I would definitely think it's a weed. It's growing out of the cracks. And he said, if you steep that in water, it'll break up kidney stones. Wow. These are things because his father and his grandfather, they're generational farmers. The medicinal, yeah. Medicinal. And he doesn't think anything of it. He's like, oh, kidney, you know, you eat this. You know, he's and he's just, he's fun, but he's, he's like chocolate mousse to my soul so he's like he's oh. wild but he's then he's not really crazy he's nuts he's outlandish but there's nobody better there's just nobody wow. better so how does the weather affect how you live in the mediterranean it affects everything <laughs> so <laughs> lately it's been windy and cold and we have something called blood rain and it's the sand from the sahara desert in africa coming through so we're not outside right now because the, the air feels like chalk You can taste the sand when you breathe. So we're all trying Mm -hmm. to be inside as much as possible. But when that sun comes out, which is 300 days a year, everybody's outside. Everybody. You can walk down the main part of town and see the promenade and you've got people on their rollerblades and children on their bikes. And it's the only place that's wide enough that you can actually do this. The rest of the country is zero. The sidewalks are the size of a Q-tip. They are so narrow, I can't even walk with both of my kids on one sidewalk because it is that tiny. But on this one promenade in Slima, everybody goes out. They're jogging, walking. There's even a huge... um, statue and it looks like pete the cat it's the cat park so all the cats come over and sleep there there's all these cat beds and cat food and feeding and it's all there in Slima. so you can see people walking and the cats are out on the benches getting all the loving and people are walking their dogs it's every every sunny day every sunny day wow that's wonderful as we close out our conversation there were some questions that you mentioned in your book tell us how you set up the book first of all I I really like the way, you know, you added in kind of the ingredients of life. Uh, So the table of contents for my book is considered the menu. So we have the aperitif, which is so when you sit down in a European meal, you have an aperitif, which is usually a low alcohol drink like a um, Aperol spritz or a low content, low sugar white wine or something to that effect. And then you have an appetizer. And then you have your main course, and then you have your or your dessert, and then your digestive. Uh, but there's it's a whole it's a whole process. 
And then you have your coffee somewhere in that too, after meal espresso. The way that I have been learning this, because I used to just scarf down my food in one little sitting, and then all of a sudden you go to dinner with friends and you're like, oh my gosh, it's been three hours. Are we still here at this table? Because they do it so, there's a method to the madness and it goes with the digestion. But we don't even think about that in the States because we're always in a rush. And so here, everybody's... They say the word slowly, but they never say it once. They go slowly, slowly. I'm, you know, everything's slowly, slowly. Same with eating. Everything's, a, it's a process and it's a whole gathering. You don't eat alone and you eat according to the way that it works in your body. And, and according to the menus change, according to what's in season, because you grow most of the food here. So everything, the whole approach to food and to your menu is how I put it into the book. So that you go on a ride with me and you go through the courses. Yeah, it's um, it's a wonderful way to write the book. And I um, it's a wonderful way to kind of shift uh, your the total perspective on how we're living our lives. You're very in touch with nature in ways that we normally aren't. One of the book chapters is Time, T-I-M-E, and Time, T-H-Y-M-E. Again, so time and time again. In the section about how many boats did we miss, you write, everyone has a story they tell themselves that revolves around missing out on an opportunity that could have been really huge if they had taken the chance and gone for it. This is everything to do with both basic and divine timing lining up in our favor. So here's some questions that I thought would be nice for the listeners to ponder. And once I finish, if you can kind of expand on the context around the questions. Okay. So can you think of a defining time in your life when you were given an opportunity to do something bold and brave, but you didn't take it? How has that affected your life since that day? Did it change you? Did it make you shy away from ever trying it again? Do you believe that you only get one chance? And if you don't take that one, that there will never be another chance again. So to trust in the timing of things, you also have a few other questions worth pondering. And I'll have these included in the show notes. Tell me a little bit more about your line of thinking around those questions. Uh, I've been doing massage therapy for over 20 years. And people tend to, to share with me their innermost secrets because I have my hands on their body and their body wants to tell their story in a way that surprises people when they're on the table. Why did I think of that? Thought of it because your body's been holding on to it for the last 30 years and now it wants to just kind of get it out. So my perspective is uniquely different in the whole timing. And I cannot tell you, and myself included, how many of us have a story in our head that we didn't, we didn't jump at this particular opportunity and therefore we're never gonna get a shot again. When I was younger, I cheered in college and then I taught aerobics and yoga and all these things. And I was a massive athlete and I was always really in shape. Yet back then, everybody liked to tell me that I should just lose, lose a little bit more weight, tone up a little bit more. They, they were so really? open to having conversations about my body that I never asked for. I never said, does this make me look fat? But they loved to do it. And then you get a little bigger <laughs> and nobody does that to you anymore. But what I was told when I wrote my first book, Stretch Therapy, a friend of mine was doing was in charge of the marketing and the camera for all the photos. And I only put myself in the book to stretch other people. And he said, what are you trying to do? I mean, are you trying to get on TV? And I said, are you about to tell me to lose weight? 
he's like, well, I mean, just get back to yoga. I mean, if you want to be on camera, you got to have a particular body and you always used to have that body. And I thought, really? Because he criticized it then too, you know? And so in my mind, because of him saying this, I was never going to be on camera. And then I said, well, I'm a writer. I can stay behind the scenes. Nobody has to see me. I just want to write. And then all of a sudden I move here and I say, I, you know, reach out to a magazine and I say, hey, I'm an American author. I'd love to learn about food over here. And my little tiny 28-year-old editor says, would you be interested in being on camera? And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> oh, this isn't going to go well. You know, and all those thoughts went in. I'm going to yeah. be way too old and way too fat. And there's no way that somebody's going to want me on camera. And then I go meet her and she's 28 and like <laughs> a bombshell. She's exactly what you think about in Mediterranean. Dark skin, olive, dark hair, bean pole, little crop top shirts with this perfect little tummy, really outgoing. And I'm like, why am I the one on camera when you look like a rock star? But when I started to interview the farmer, she looked at me and she goes, oh, my God, you're doing all food from now on. This is so awesome. And I thought, what do you mean I'm going to do all food from now on? You want me on camera? And, and I had to really come to peace with this, that I'm a 48-year-old. I'm not a kickboxing yoga martial artist anymore. And even then, I got more criticism than I do now. And I had to really think about, okay, if I'm allowed this chance yeah. Am I going to shy away from it? Because the voice in my head says, no, 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 you don't have the right look. You're never going to be successful because you don't weigh the right weight. Except when I weighed the right weight, I wasn't successful then either. And mm -hmm. so I had to revamp what makes you successful. Oh, what makes yeah. your life successful? And what story have I been holding for a really long time that a lot of people do? I have a friend that that he's a guy and he said somebody used to ask him all the time to model and he turned it down. And now he. Like now he's too old and it could never happen. And he, that was his one, one shot at greatness and he missed it. You know, and we all have that. We all have some story that we have some shot at greatness and we didn't take it. But if we would have taken it, we'd be like, you know, famous or whatever thing. We've like got this made up story of how it would have ended, except yeah. it's based on literally nothing. And so we have to think about what is the story and how accurate is it? And if you were to be given another shot, would you change the narrative and jump in even if you don't think that you show up with the right clothes or the right the, the right thing? I didn't think people here would want to hear from me. I'm not Maltese. I'm four foot 11, so I'm not tall and lanky. I'm round. I'm not fat, but I'm not definitely no body that I used to have. And I thought this will be a one time. We'll do potatoes and then I'll be done. But I was hoping for another chance because the farmers don't care. And and here's what I noticed. Do you know, you know, Brene Brown? Yes. Brene Brown does that Netflix special where she talks about after her first TED talk, all the comments were about her weight. She did a whole TED talk on vulnerability. And yet all of the comments were, were Botox, less talking. You know, if she would drop 20 pounds, horrible things. And it's disgusting. So when I started to get these opportunities to do these interviews, my tomato interview had 65,000 views in one week in Malta. Oh, and it had hundreds of comments. And I was like, okay, this is my Brene Brown moment. I'm going to read the comments, but I'm not going to take it personally. And I'm going to be okay. There was not... One foul comment, not one. Every comment was, way to go, Joseph. We're so proud of you, Joseph. Yes, tomatoes. We love you, Joseph. It wasn't even about me. 
And that's when I realized I'm there to highlight them. I'm just the middleman. And it's not all about me. And thank God for that. Because I made him look great. Because that's where all the comments went. And it was one of those, yet again, I'm living in a country where people aren't so fixated. Now, there's still a lot of plastic surgery and things over here. But they're not as fixated. And they're not as mean about it. And so now I have this opportunity where I've I've been on, like I said, the wellness show over 30 times since I moved here. And I've been on camera every month on the other one. And nobody has come to me and said, you know, I would be happy to let you do this if you would just lose some weight and get some Botox. No one said that to me. (laughs) But back, back, you know, in my old life, that was the narrative. So when Mm -hmm. I think of how many boats I thought I missed, I never saw it coming at 46 at the time, or 45, that some boat was going to show up and go, hey, come on, I've been waiting for you. Let's do this. Yeah. And we go, you know what? <laughs> yes, I'm going to do it. And yeah. now, and nobody talks to me like I do in my head. And so nice. I'm trying to like recalibrate the story I share with myself and how I see the world around me. Because I'm also not lucky looking at people and going, wow, she just got Botox, she'd be good. I don't think that way. And I really resent that a lot of people have pushed that narrative onto me without my permission, but also I let them over and over. And now that's just not the way people treat each other over here. And I'm so grateful for that. But that's a boat. Did Did I miss that boat? Because I thought I did. I always thought I missed the boat. I always thought if I would have mm-hmm. had the confidence that I have now, when I had the hotter body, I would have been successful. But when I had the hotter body, I wasn't <laughs> successful yeah. and I wasn't yeah. pushing. And I didn't have the confidence to even say, hey, I want to be on stage. Hey, I want to be on screen. I didn't push for any of that. So mm-hmm. it's just how many people hold on to a story where they could have been successful, but they really didn't push back then. And if yeah. you had the opportunity, would you go for it? Yeah. And you really did get on the boat. I got on the boat and I didn't, I honestly didn't see that coming. I really did. I thought that I really liked being behind the scenes as far as writing and, and, you know, even still, I I still hope to write the next book and I'd love for it to be a screenplay. And I met an actress that was in town from LA and, and my landlord had talked to her about, I have this book idea. My whole life over here is so unique. And she was like, I mean, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to cast yourself as the lead character? And I was like, God, no, no, I want to act in it. I've never even taken a day of acting class. I mean, stay in your lane. I know that I'm not an actress, but yeah, I'd like to write the screenplay. And I also, you're not going to play me because you are like this big around and like 30 years younger, like there's zero chance. You know, I want like real people, but it was funny to me when she asked that, like, are you trying to cast yourself? And it was like, no. Right. <laughs> well, maybe you could. I mean, no. Yeah. You know, I, I love being in front of the camera, but for interviews, I don't want to like try to pretend to be something. I would have no idea how to do that. And I don't want to. But that's yeah. kind of cool because now I'm at that age where I can use discernment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And move deeper into the authentic um level of yourself that you haven't had access to before? I've never had the kind of access that I have now. I mean, all those years when I was really could have done something, I was so plagued with anxiety and panic. I never put myself out there. 
Yeah. And now I'm putting myself into places that I I just never saw coming, but I jumped. And it is really, I have to say it over and over, the power of not being able to work has been liberating because nobody would have hired me if I said, well, I charge this in the States and I do this. Instead, it was like, look, I'm, when I when I contacted the magazine and said, I want to write for you, and they wrote back and they said, full disclosure, we'd kill to have you work for us, but honestly, we can't afford you. And I wrote back and I was like, hmm, full disclosure, I'm willing to work for publicity. I got to build a brand over here. I'm still writing and I don't want to stop writing. So maybe we take money off the table and have a different conversation. She was like, can you call me? <laughs> and we had a phone call. And by the end of it, I had the potato, you know, I had to go find the potato farmer. None of these people, these, these people in their twenties don't know the farmers. So everything has been me doing the legwork, really yeah. hard work, legwork. Yeah. And when I was in my 20s, I wouldn't have worked as hard as I work now. But it's really cool to work this hard and it has yeah. nothing to do with money. Yeah. It's cool. It's cool. Right. It's really amazing. Well, thank you so much for inspiring us with the taste of joy. I can't wait for our next conversation when we dive into Mediterranean wisdom for a life worth savoring, which is the tagline for your book. I just want to invite listeners to scroll down to the bottom of the show notes for the questions that Emily has challenged us to answer in today's conversation. And there are four other questions. What is meant to be yours now? What opportunities are you preparing for? Are you doing the necessary work to take the opportunity when it shows up? That's preparation meets opportunity kind of thinking. And are you brave enough, strong enough, and trusting enough to board the bigger boat? I love that. So I have included them in the three conscious, attentive mentoring or calm activities. And I invite you to do take the risks or do the adventurous tasks and answer the questions. Then apply some self-compassion and welcome in appreciation. Emily, you are the joy of life. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Nancy. This was wonderful. All right. We'll talk again soon. And thanks everybody for tuning in. Bye for now. If you want to expand your leadership skills and become more resilient and competent as a business owner, do you want to bring more meaning to your relationships and more purpose to your business? Are you ready to take charge of how you innovate, create, and run your business? Our dual innovation leadership process will help you redefine how you lead as you redesign your business. We collaborate with you to do what will work for you as you evolve and change. We start with where you are, whether you are turning around a financial crisis, growing to the next level, or somewhere in between. We address your immediate needs, shore up business development gaps, expand relational literacy, and build upon your entrepreneurial leadership skill sets with the short-term results orientation and a long-term perspective. Start by subscribing to this podcast at WeMentor.com or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. If you are ready to hire a mentor, contact me at Nancy at WeMentor.com. When we mentor, you create better life and a more fulfilling future as an entrepreneurial leader slash innovator, as a competent business owner slash practitioner, as a mentor slash role model, and as a human being courageously living a meaningful life. As Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. Get involved today. It's never too late to change your life and how you lead.